I totally right? Am I on? I'm on. There I am. Good. Hey, listen, we're going to start off this morning with a little word association game. And I'm going to throw out a word. And I want you to uh, think of the first word that comes to mind. When I, when I say this word, whatever word pops into your mind, whatever you associate with this word, I want you to think about that. Then I want you to hold on to that word because I'm going to ask you to turn and share it with your neighbor even if you're an introvert, all right? And, and here's why. I think there's going to be some weird answers of, that come to people's mind. And I don't know if you know anything about me. Every now and then, I like to get weird. Amen? It keeps things exciting. So... So here's the word. I'm going to throw out this word, and whatever word you associate with, whatever comes to mind, I want you to think about that, and then I want you to hold on to that, okay? So here's the word I'm going to throw out for you to associate with. All right, here it is. Worldly. That's the word. Worldly. Now, when you have a word that you associate with worldliness or worldly that comes to mind, just raise your hand. When you've got a word, when it pops in, raise your hand. Anybody got one? Several of you? Lots of you? Some of you? None of you? I don't, so you got a word? Yeah, most of you got a word. All right, here's the deal. So whatever that word is, whatever you associate with, whatever comes to your mind with the word worldly, I want you to turn right now and share it with the neighbor, the person sitting next to you. Like, when I think of worldly, this is the word that comes to mind. So share that with your neighbor. Anybody just think to themselves upon hearing that, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? And you look at the person sitting next to you and say, that's saying a lot coming from you, all right? That's the dumbest weirdest thing I've ever heard. Why would you think of that? What happened in your childhood? Can I pray for you? Like you just, you hear all kinds of things. Just when you hear that word, for some of you, it brings up all kinds of lists. Uh, for some of you, if you came from a certain church background, like a legalistic background, like, you know what? It's hard for me to get it down to one word because my church background, we have lots of words we would associate with worldliness. And uh, some of you can even recite the list of worldliness that was from your, your background. Some of you, if you're honest, you're still living by certain parts of that list, even though you don't know why it doesn't feel right, but you just find yourself conforming into that old habit. And so uh, for some people, worldly sounds like an old-fashioned idea. Like, do we even believe that? Do we teach that? Does the Bible even talk about that? And it seems like a, a word that's a, it's had its day already. Now, I did not grow up going to church a lot. And so that word for me, world that grew up, it, like it had no value, no meaning. I didn't even know what you were talking about. And Tasha grew up in a church environment, was very legalistic, very strict. And so she knew exactly what that word meant. And she had a list of what it, what it entailed. She had all the very detailed lists of what that was. And so uh, when I started going to church as a young adult, the church we started going to together uh, was uh, crusaded hard. I mean, Hard. They went hard against the idea of worldliness, and there were things that were on a prohibited list because these were worldly things. And if you were a professing Christian and you had a list of things you thought were worldly, and your list didn't line up with my list, then that, in that culture that we were in, we had to separate fellowship from you. Like, because we were afraid that somehow, if your list wasn't as good as our list, or some of the things on our list weren't on your list, that by being around you, somehow, your worldliness would rub off on us like some kind of spiritual poison ivy. I don't even know, like, I don't know why, but we couldn't fellowship anymore, even if you were a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, some may associate worldliness uh, with a certain degree of wealth, or being consumed with material possessions, or the intense desire to have the best or look the best no matter what the cost, no matter what the compromise is. Uh, others have heard this phrase. My guess some of you are like, y'all, I've heard that before. Uh, you would uh, hear things like this in those uh, church environments. Uh, we're to be in the world, 
but not of the world. Anybody ever hear that phrase in church? Yeah, lots of you. I'm sorry. Like, right? You're like, I didn't know what that meant, but we just said that all the time. I don't know how to play that out, live that out, but we said that. I've heard that all the time. So there's no lack of uh, clarity, or there is a lack of clarity, as to what the term actually implies. Is, is it a list? Should I have a list? Uh, what should be on that list? Is it, is it people I associate with that makes me worldly? Is it places I go? Is it things I do? What exactly does it clarify when we talk about this idea of worldliness? But here's the thing that is not uh, lacking clarity. It's whatever worldliness is that when I read the scriptures, here's what I can conclude safely. There's clarity on this. Jesus is not a fan. Like, I don't even know what, like what it is and what, what it's about, but I know this when I read the Bible, that Jesus is not a fan of worldliness, whatever it actually is, all right? So let me invite you to take your Bibles, phone, tablets. We're going to jump back into the series we were in in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation called Dear Church, and uh, the title of the message this morning is Contextualized or Compromised. Contextualized or Compromised. Let me tell you why I picked that title. For the last two weeks, we paused the series and uh, we uh, took two Sundays and, and a week in between there, midweek, to celebrate uh, Missions Week. And a key strategy, if you've ever been around missions or missionaries, a key strategy in missions work is the principle of contextualization. And contextualization is the idea that you change your methods to effectively engage and build bridges with whatever culture you're in while walking the fine line not to compromise your message in your efforts to contextualize. And so when we send missionaries to, to other countries, what's the first thing we tell them? Hey, learn the culture, learn the customs, learn the language. And I've watched missionaries fail miserably because they went to other places and they've tried to get people to become Americans or uh, embrace American culture before uh, they embrace Jesus Christ. And so we tell that all the time to missionaries. I'm a big believer in that. So as long as you're not compromising teaching the whole counsel of God's word, and, but here's the reality. Um, I think uh, churches in America ha have lost the idea that this is a mission field. Did you know this? That America is now considered by some researchers as the third largest mission field in the world. There are actually other groups now sending missionaries to America to help engage uh, people who don't know Christ. And so this is a mission field, and many churches don't understand that. So they never adjust any of their methods uh, to embrace the, the cultural trends around them without compromising their message. And many churches today that you could walk into, it's like uh, going into a museum. Whatever they did 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, they're still doing it. They're still singing the same songs, same order of worship. Uh, the, same, the church still looks the same. And it's no longer a, a missions organization. It's a museum of what God used to do in our church 30, 40, 50 years. Let me just tell you this, this little side note that's totally for free. If a church's uh, best moments are in the windshield or, or in the rearview mirror and not the windshield, they're in trouble. If all the conversations about what God has done in our church are, are decades past, that church is in trouble whether they realize it or not. But in our efforts to contextualize, there is a danger that we don't compromise. Uh, and one of the things that's very difficult, just being transparent as lead pastor here, one of the things that's very difficult is, is to, to bridge the balance between being relevant and being biblically faithful. That's hard. Listen, we've been accused uh, at times of, of not doing one or the other. We should be more relevant, more contemporary, more, more edgy. And at times we've, we've done some things that, that someone said, well, that's, that's worldly and I don't know what, you know, those. So, so it's hard. 
It's hard. How do I remain culturally relevant to engage the culture around me, but, but be committed to biblical fidelity in everything that I do and that I preach and I teach? It is a hard thing. And sometimes churches have uh, gotten that mix messed up. This past week, one of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles, pastors of church, Shiloh Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, he, he is a relevant communicator, but he is incredibly biblically faithful. And here's the, what H.B. said this week. I read, uh, he said... Um, the following, he said, leaning over to reach the world, the church has fallen in. Leaning over to reach the world, the church has fallen in. And so he said there was a, a time where we wouldn't change anything. And he said now, uh, we uh, at times have changed everything to the point we've compromised what makes us distinctive as followers of Jesus Christ. And that, that is a challenge to navigate those things. And according to Revelation chapter 2, the church here uh, in Pergamos uh, was guilty of that very thing. They had lost their distinctiveness. They had totally capitulated to the culture around them to the point where they compromised the thing that makes them distinct in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I'm deeply grieved by that. All right? So let's pick it up here at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 down through verse 17 this morning. Verse 12 starts and says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there, so he's talking about the midst of that church, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual morality. Thus, you also have uh, those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. That's Jesus talking. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, before we start talking about this idea of, of compromise, we need to understand, lay some groundwork here, and clarify some things as it relates to the idea of worldliness. Like, what even is it, and what it's not, and all those things. So here's what I want you to understand. Uh, the Greek word uh, for the word world in your English Bible is actually the word cosmos in the Greek. And that word is used in the Bible 185 times in the New Testament alone. John, the writer here, uses it 105 of those 185. He uses it uh, 78 times in, in the Gospel of John. He uses it 24 times in the epistles he wrote. And three times here in the book of Revelation. And so when you survey all the times that word is used, particularly when John used it, you're basically going to land in a few different places as to actually what that word means when it talks about the world or the cosmos. Uh, it may refer to the physical world around us. John chapter 1 verse 10 talks about that. The world may refer to the people of the world collectively. John 3, 16, 1 John chapter 2. And so in those senses, uh, there's nothing wrong with loving the world. Uh, we should enjoy the creation around us. We should love those uh, in humanity, whether they know Christ or not. But John also, when using this word, uh, refers to the evil organized system uh, of the enemy, of Satan himself. And so 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says this, We know that we are of God 
and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he's talking about those, those things, the world that is opposed to God. So let's get a working definition of worldliness. This may not be the best one. You may find a better one. You may have a better one. You may be able to look one up. But, but this is a, uh, easy to remember, and I think it is biblically faithful. So let's just use this this morning to kind of lay the foundation a little bit. Worldliness is this. Worldliness is valuing the things that a godless culture values that opposes the things God values. That's it. It's whatever an unbelieving world values in their culture that opposes the things God values. It's loving those things. That is the heart of worldliness. It's an, it can be an obsession and affection for things that are temporal as opposed to things that are eternal. Now, let me just give you some quick examples because I think it'll help you understand because if we don't have clarity, you'll just drift back to, oh, it's about going to the movies and playing cards and you know, wearing makeup and you know, all that kind of stuff. So let me just give you some uh, quick examples of things the world values, the godless culture values uh, that's opposed to what God values. Here's some examples. Uh, the world values aggressiveness, assertiveness, dog-eat-dog. God values meekness, which is controlled strength. It's actually fruit of the Spirit. The world values look out for number one. But God values humility, and humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. The world values um, accumulated sexual experiences. God values purity. The world values getting. God values giving. The world values self-promotion. God values self-denial. The world values achievement. God values faithfulness. The world exalts outer beauty, while God exalts inner character. The world values living for the moment. If it just feels right, do it. Grab a hold. Go for the gusto. You only go around this world once. Do all you can. God values living with an eternal perspective. Do you get the idea? And so the unbelieving culture says these are things we celebrate. These are things we, we hold high as the banner of success. And many of those things are directly in contrast to the things that God values. Now, if you're listening, say amen. I hope you see in listing that list of examples that worldliness is not about habits, like playing cards or uh, going to movies or, or dancing. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, someone asked me, like, hey, you know, kids are going to dance. Is it wrong to go to dance? Or they want to dance at a wedding. Is it all right to dance? And I say, well, it depends. Uh, sometimes it is sinful. Like, oh, I know if it's immoral, that kind of thing. So actually, uh, if you're a bad dancer, it's always sinful. I just want to acknowledge that, all right? <laughs> Like, if you're a terrible dancer, God's grieved by that, all right? And if you're not careful, everything in the world is so kind of land that arena, arena of places and habits and all those things. But here's what I want you to see from that list. Worldliness has little to do with habits and everything to do with heart affections. Little to do with habits and everything to do with heart affections affections. And if you think that uh, worldliness is all about avoiding certain places and certain activities, then you've reduced the gospel and following Jesus Christ down to just uh, moralism. You, you've made obedience the goal of the Christian life, and it's not. The goal of the Christian life is intimacy with God, and the overflow of a life pursuing intimacy with God is obedience. And it's so easy to do those things, and God has clearly stated, though, that, uh, that the Christians should not value the things that, that unbelievers value, that we're not to be a part of the world's system and value the things that culture values. Now, you're just thinking, well, is this like just this one place? I mean, and, I mean, it's at the end of the Bible, so should we even worry about it 
now because that's future. Like, is that all future? You kind of wrestling with all that. Listen, let me just tell you some other places in the Bible where it speaks clearly uh, against worldliness. This idea of valuing the things that a godless culture values. Here's just a couple of verses. You can write these down. Look these up later. Romans twelve two says this. Do not be conformed to this world. One paraphrase says this. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. I love that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You know another word for passions? Uh, hard affections. This is this not about habits, it's about hard affections and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 27 says this. We're very familiar with the first part of this verse. We uh, slap on a lot of adoption and foster care things, rightly so, but we forget the second part. Here's what it says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and... But forgets this part, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, John, first John chapter one, maybe one of the most well-known passages in the Bible is this idea of worldliness. First John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen. Do not love the world. You know what that means? Don't let the things that a godless culture values capture the affections of your heart. That's that's what that means. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that he gives some descriptors, these, these are broad categories, desires of the flesh, desire of their eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. So remember earlier I told you a form of worldliness is valuing that which is temporal over that which is eternal. Here's why that's worldliness. Because the world is passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So for a Christian to be worldly is for them to operate on the same principles and value the same things that an unbelieving, godless culture values. It's think and act out of selfishness or greed or pride. Personal ambition is to have a selfish desire for things you don't have and a sinful pride of the things that you do have. And so uh, what happens when you do that, that person... Rather than living to please God, lives to impress other people. That's it. And you ever know someone like that? Their whole life is consumed with what do people think, and I'm going to impress other people, and how does this make me look? That's a person whose heart's affections has been captured by worldly values because the world looks upon the outside, but God looks upon the inside. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 teaches that. And so you don't have to wonder, like, how do they, why are they so obsessed with what people think? Because they've, uh, some worldly values has crept into their heart. That's exactly what's happened there. And what happened to this church here at Pergamos, uh, they began to, they went well beyond the boundaries of contextualizing to reach their culture. They've been in full-blown compromise, and they just uh, caved into the culture around them. And here's the deal. If it can happen to the church at Pergamos collectively, we've said this every week in this series, if it can happen to this church collectively, it can happen to us individually because we are the church. And so this is not a history lesson about what happened to the little church at Pergamos. This is God's wisdom and instruction for us today. And in looking at that, I want you to see uh, two principles here uh, in this passage. He first starts off with some words of encouragement when he tells them and us today uh, this principle, that faithful living 
is possible in worldly conditions. Faithful living is possible in worldly uh, conditions. I think if we took an honest survey this morning, we, we would say something along these lines. Boy, the longer I live, the harder it is to live for Jesus in a world that's compromising all around us. The world around us is growing more hostile to a, a biblical worldview and the gospel. And so more than ever, it's harder now than it's ever been. I, I'm assuming this, the older you are, the more you probably feel like that. You, like No one's, uh, you look around, there's not a leave it to beaver culture anymore, right? And, and here's my suspicion. My suspicion is that ever since uh, the first century, that every group of Christ followers has murmured among themselves, boy, no one's uh, ever had it as hard as we do living for Christ. No, no one's ever been around the cultural and the worldliness that, that we're trying to live out our faith. And I think that every generation of believers, if we're not careful, kind of feels that way. And let me tell you why that's so dangerous. Here's why. Because once you start to let that dominate your thoughts... This idea that, boy, given the current cultural climate, it is nearly impossible to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. Once you start to embrace that idea, then what happens is this. You've already justified the compromise before you've engaged in it. And you'll say things like, well, God knows my heart. Or, well, I know what the Bible says, but, or, you know, I know what, this is what I should have done, but given the circumstances, I just didn't see that possible, working out well, or playing out well, or all those kinds of things. And so what happens is this, you begin to believe that, that it's impossible, that given all the cultural pressure around us, and all the temptation around us, it is impossible to live faithfully for Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that does not lean towards biblical worldview. Now, if you're listening, say amen. God has a word for you. And if you're sitting there thinking, boy, when I turn on the news, like I don't see anybody going to live faithfully for Christ. So when, I, when I look at the temptation, our kids are, you've said things like this, I wouldn't want to be a kid now, like all these temptations, the internet and social media and all the pressure. And, and, and boy, it, it's almost impossible to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. And that, that begins to dominate our thoughts. But here's what the Bible says. And what we're, in every culture says this, no culture has faced the kinds of temptations that we're facing right now to compromise faithful living for Jesus Christ. That's what we think. Here's what the Bible says. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. Think of every temptation to worldliness in this current culture. No temptation has overtaken you except... Such as is common to man. You know what happens right before compromise? This thought pattern right here. Well, I know what God says about fill in the blanks. But gosh, given, given the uniqueness of this temptation, I don't know that everyone's ever uh, been tempted in the way that I'm tempted. I don't know that everyone's uh, ever been in this situation. And God says, hey, listen, whatever temptation you're uh, struggling with to, against compromise, uh, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Now, it's different forms. It drives different cars. But it's the same hard issue that's tempting us. Listen to this, that verse. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to 
bear it. And so if you're battling the temptation to compromise living faithfully for Jesus Christ, here's the word of God you should lay hold of and live out of the truth of God. This one that God has made a promise and he says, hey, whatever you're walking with, it is not uncommon. Someone has walked through that temptation before because no temptation except that which is common to man. And the good news is this, that God is faithful and whatever you're tempted with, God has already made a way of escape. You don't have to wonder about that. You just got to pray and discern where it's at. That is a truth that transcends culture. You know how I know that? Because those words in 1 Corinthians, he was writing a letter of rebuke to the worldliest church you've ever visited. And yet he still told them, he said, hey, despite all the immorality going on in the church at Corinth, uh, listen, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common. But God is faithful and God has made a way of escape for every single person. In other words, what's going on around you does not have to determine what's going on inside of you. You've heard the analogy used of a, of a ship. When you see a large ship going through the water, listen, it's surrounded all around it are millions of gallons of water that are keeping it afloat. But when just a few gallons uh, that's outside of it get inside of it, it sinks that ship. And so the principle is simply this. What's going on around you, when it starts creeping in inside of you, you're sunk. And if you're not careful, you look at a godless culture, a worldly culture around you, and you'll just think there's no way anyone can be faithful but listen, he commended them for that. He says, I'm proud of you. Look at verses 12 and 13. In verse 12 he says, And the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So it's picturing Jesus here as judge and execution. That's the description here in verse 12. And then in verse 13 he says this. He says, As the judge, verse 12, I know your works. And where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name despite the godless culture around you, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was a faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, listen, how many of you have ever relocated for a job? Anybody have a job relocation? Yeah, lots of you have. Now listen, when you relocate for a job, and lots of people in our church have been relocated at some point in time, and so uh, here's what I know. When you get a job relocation, you know what happens when you find out, hey, you're getting relocated, you start uh, getting on the internet, you want to know what the neighborhood's like, you want to know what surrounding communities are like, you start looking up how good is the school system and all those things, you want to look at the crime rate, you look at amenities, you look at all, you start doing all this research. But in all of that research, I don't care how low the crime is, I don't care how great the schools are, I don't care how many Targets and Walmarts there are, right, or restaurants, whatever you like, if the town slogan is this, where Satan dwells, do not move there, all right? You think, where did you, I'm going to this quaint little town, it's incredible restaurants, the schools are great, every kid graduates and gets a full Ivy League scholarship, they've won a state championship 14 years in a row, uh, any warning signs? You know, when I drove into town, there was a sign there that said, welcome to, fill in the blank, where Satan dwells. Don't move there, all right? What did he say about their town in verse 13? I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You ever go into a town like this is the capital of such a, this is, like you go into that town, their landmark, this is the th where the throne of Satan is. Don't move there. Here's what he says. He says, listen, in spite of that, now a lot of scholars have debated what does that mean? There's all kinds of theories about what does that mean where Satan dwells. Some have said this uh, is a reference to the huge altar of Zeus 
that dominated the Acropolis there. Some have connected Satan's throne to the worship of a particular god, uh, Eclipius, the god of healing. And people all over the world would come and worship this god, hoping to get healing. Uh, some would say that the, the cult uh, of emperor worship was so strong that this particular place was the most dangerous place for Christians to live in all of Asia Minor. But listen, there's all kinds of debate about what he means about that term. But here's something everyone agrees on. This was not a place for godly faith to flourish. But in spite of all of that, many Christians, according to verse 13, he said, many of you held fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas was martyred. Now, we just have to go back in church history and kind of study. There was an emperor at that time. Uh, his name was Domitian, was the worst persecutor of Christians. And many historians believe this. Uh, we don't totally know who this guy is, uh, this Antipas, but what uh, history tells us from tradition is this, is that he would not engage in emperor worship, and so Domitian, the emperor at that time, had him roasted alive inside of a brass bull. Now, if I was roasted alive inside of a brass bull, would you still come here faithfully? And some of you are thinking, bro, you wouldn't fit inside of a brass bull, right? I hear what you're saying. I'm broad-shouldered. I get, I get that. He says, you know what? In a godless culture, the town motto is where Satan dwells. One of your leaders got roasted out inside of a brass bull, and you held fast. You know what that teaches here in this passage? That faithful living is possible despite a worldly culture. Do not let what's going on around you determine what's going on inside of you. And I know there's temptation all around us, but God is faithful. And he's already made a way of escape. It's the first thing I want you to see. But then Jesus also gives a word of warning, and the warning is this, do not be deceived about bad company. Do not be deceived about bad company. And your fight to remain faithful in a godless worldly culture, do not be deceived about the power and the influence of bad company. And so we know from verse 13 that a majority of believers, despite living in a town where Satan dwells, despite all this going on, they were faithful, but there were some who were associated with the church, still in the church, who compromised in incredible ways. Uh, look at verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because, he lists two things, you have there, he's describing in the fellowship of the church. He's not talking about in town. In the fellowship of the church. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual morality? So number one, you're hanging out with these guys. And then number two, thus you have also those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So he says, hey, you're doing a lot of things well. I'm encouraged by that. You've been faithful in a town where Satan dwells. But you've been hanging out with these people. You're letting them fellowship in the church. And then secondly, there's this other group, verse 15, you're hanging out with these people, letting them fellowship in the church. Now, who are these two groups of people in verse 14 uh, and 15? And so let me just give you the cliff notes. You're not bogged down with all the details. So in verse 14, uh, when he says this, you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Let me give you the cliff notes of what he's even talking about. That's an Old Testament reference. Basically, there was a guy uh, in the Old Testament, his name was Balaam, and basically Balaam was a notorious Old Testament prophet for hire. What I mean by that? If you wanted to put a curse on someone, Balaam was your dude, all right? 
You're like, you know what? I don't like that guy, and we want to curse him. Go find Balaam, pay him. He'll put a curse on him. He'll do that. And so there was another guy, a king, over uh, Moab. is a guy named Balak, not the same person. And Balak was nervous because he saw this huge army of people, God's chosen people, marching towards Palestine. He thought, they're going to overthrow. I'm going to lose control. And the reason he was afraid of them, because he had witnessed the power of God that gave them victory over the neighboring kingdom of the Amorites. And so like every king wants to do, he wants to stay in power. Listen, I mean, he's out there like, hey, Balak for 2020, all right? Like he's like, at all costs, I want to stay in power. And so what do I do? I get this huge army marching. I've already seen the power of God on them. They've already thrown over a neighboring kingdom, the Amorites. What do I do? I know what I'll do. I'll hire Balaam, and he'll put a curse on them, and this whole thing will be shut down. But here's what happened. God intervenes. He hires Balaam, and Balaam tries three times to speak a curse over the nation of Israel, and three times God intervenes, and the words that come out of his mouth are not a curse. They're actually a blessing. And so Balaam goes back and says, hey, you paid me to speak a curse, and three times their God of the Israelites intervened and actually spoke a blessing. And I didn't even want to. You're like, I've been there. I've said nice things about people, and I have no idea, right? Amen? Power of God. He says, but here's a plan B. Entice them with idolatry. An idol is anything that promises to do only God can do. And women. And they gave in to that temptation, and God judged them greatly. But there were some people who were engaged in immorality and idolatry in the fellowship of that church at Pergamos. And you know what the church said? It's fine. You just let him be. It's fine. He says, and I have that against you. You've tolerated compromise in the church. And then he goes on to list the second group. So he says, one, you're hanging out with those dudes. I don't like them. 1, verse 14, and then he says to the second group of people, go back to verse 15 again, thus you also have those, again, he's speaking in the church, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Like, who is that? That's actually, just trust me, I'm a pastor. That's actually the ancestors of, of Nick, Nick Clayson, all right? That's where Nick comes from, the Greek word Nicolation. Just, just write that down, all right? So who is this group of people? Now, history doesn't totally tell us. We're not totally sure. But here's the, the, what we can conclude from the limit amount we know about the Nicolaitans. They were guilty of constantly disrupting unity in the fellowship of the churches that they infiltrated. Now, you're like, is that really a big deal? I mean, you got one people over here trying to curse the people of God. Then you got these people over here just kind of complainers and troublemakers. Is that really on the same scale? I mean, I think one's way worse than the other. Listen, let me tell you how God thinks about disunity in the church. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, says this. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Let me, let me, just, let me just give you a paraphrase. Just, this paraphrase based on 17 years of doing this full time. Let me give you a paraphrase. Quit disrupting fellowship over the age of the earth and Calvinism and predestination and eternal security and the timing of the Lord's return. Fill, you get the idea? Quarrels about the law, genealogies, trivial things, secondary issues. Not everything's a gospel issue. Secondary issues. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division. Now, what was this church doing? They just totally compromised and said, hey, you guys want to compromise? You want to do idol worship? You want to involve yourself in sexual morality? You know, that's fine. You can hang out here. It's totally fine. 
Here's what Titus says. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That's how serious God takes unity. How serious. And so clearly they said, you know what? We're just going to keep having church. Yes, there are people in our fellowship who have compromised doctrinally, morally, all these things. But it's cool. Like, we'll just pretend it's not even going on. Now, you know what they did? They violated the principle of the truth contained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, which says this. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character character. When I first started teaching this verse, I used to tell uh, everybody, hey, if you're a student, if you're a parent of a student, you know, someone junior high or high school, you should memorize this verse. You should meditate on this verse. Now, listen, 17 years in, uh, I tell everybody, you should memorize this verse. You should meditate on this verse. You know why? Peer pressure does not end in eighth grade. Did you know that? And that truth doesn't just apply to your teenager. This is not a good word for your grandson who's a knucklehead. This is God's word for us, all right? He's saying for everyone, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, that's black ink on white paper. How in the world would anybody be deceived by a truth that is so simple to understand? If you're listening, say amen. Here's how it happens. person says this, I can hang around with whoever I want as long as I want, and it will not change the person I am or I'm becoming. You know what that person just happened? They were deceived. They thought that they wouldn't be corrupted by bad company. They wouldn't corrupt their character. And God says, you're deceived. That's why the old, there's some truth in the old cliche that says this. Show me who your friends are today and I'll show you who you're becoming tomorrow. What's he say? Do not be deceived. And what were they deceived by? You know what? These Nicolaitans, they hang out with us. It's fine. It won't bother us. Hey, these people who are involved in, in Balaam and all that kind of like, well, he's going on the sexual morality, the idol worship. It's fine. We'll be compromised. Now, I want you to listen. You cannot afford to miss this. I want you to see. Now, so you've got a, two groups of people here, right? You've got verses 12 and 13. He says, hey, you live in the town where Satan dwells. And despite that being the town motto, you have remained faithful. So you've got a group of faithful people in a worldly culture in verses 12 through 13. Then... You got another group of people, verses 14 through 15, who have compromised in all kinds of doctrinal morality. You got two groups of people in the same church group who's faithful and a group who has compromised. And do you understand the difference between these two people? You cannot afford to miss this. It's not that one group had a better support system than the other group, they went to the same church. It's not that one group sat under more faithful teaching. They listened to the same sermons. The difference between these two groups in the same church sitting on the same teaching was the company they kept. That's the only difference in these two groups. You know what that means? That the company you keep will be a catalyst for either compromise or faithfulness. Like all the people hanging out, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any impact on me. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And the only difference between these two groups in verses 12 and 13 and verse 14 and 15 is the company they kept. That's it. Same church, same sermons, different company that they kept. It is that powerful. And they, they just blew that off. I could tell you story after story after story of 17 years of ministry of watching people who are on fire with the Lord 
but had no wisdom about the company they kept. And they fell victim to the truth in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And I don't know where they're at now. And I don't want that to happen to you. So let me just walk you through quickly here, very quickly, five questions, five that should serve as filters so that you can avoid compromise. Five questions to avoid compromise, and we'll hustle because we're almost out of time, all right? Five questions to avoid compromise. It's kind of a filter. You should run these three. You should write these down, and I'll, I'll try not to speak as fast. All right, so five questions to avoid compromise. Question number one, does the Bible clearly speak against it? Listen, there's a lot of mystery as it relates to, to God. Is there not? Like Romans 11.33, God, who has known your ways? Who, who can give you counsel? Who, is, like, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one's the answer, all right? You know, Job asks God some hard questions like, what are you doing? And, and God looks down at Job and goes, did you put the stars into place? Because I did. But even though there's mystery about the nature and work of God, when God speaks clearly against something, don't make things harder than it is. When God speaks clearly against something, there's your answer. I can't tell you how many times I've had couples come into my office and say, oh, listen, we're thinking about getting engaged. And, and I say, okay, let's, let's walk through that. And, and well, I just have these feelings. and I, I see a future. And all right, look, let me just hear your spiritual journey. And one person professes clearly to know Christ, and the other person does not know Christ. And they think, I feel like the Lord has led us together. And I say, I'm here to tell you he hasn't. And usually at that point, no one says, sir, thou art a prophet. <laughs> They're mad, all right? Like, why would you say that? I said, because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, not to be unequally yoked. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? So God has spoken clearly against that. You don't have to pray about that. That's the first and easiest filter. If God has spoken clearly against it, you want to avoid compromise? Just heed God's counsel. Here's the second question. Uh, second question is this, have I sought godly counsel about it? I cannot tell you how many times I've sat across from someone whose life has been destroyed by the consequences of unwise and sinful decisions. And when I ask them, hey, did you talk to anyone else about this before you did that? Here's what they'll tell me. You know, I talked to my friend because they went through the same struggle. Listen, if you're broke... Don't go get advice from some other broke person. Do you understand what I'm saying? Go to someone who's got a handle on the Word of God and whose light gives evidence of the fruit of wisdom and go to that person for godly counsel. Here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 11 and 14. Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but there's safety in a multitude of counselors. You know why people don't heed that verse? Because they're afraid they're going to run into someone who's going to disagree with what they already want to do. Oh, if I go talk to the pastor, he's gonna, I already know what he's going to say. <laughs> so I'll go talk to my friend who's sinning the same way. Right? Have I sought godly counsel about it? Avoid compromise. Uh, here's a third question to avoid compromise. Uh, does wisdom caution to avoid it? And this is an area that's not clearly black and white sin. Like, you know, like oh, don't do that. Don't, this is a, kind of a gray area where God's given some general principles but not clear instruction on this specific scenario and so you just have to ask the question does wisdom caution to avoid it proverbs chapter 14 verse 16 says this the wise you want to be wise the wise are cautious and avoid danger now here's the contrast fools 
plunge ahead with reckless confidence. Let me, let me, let me tell you, let me describe what that looks like. What could go wrong? Right? I know that other people fell over looking over the edge of whatever that activity is, but I'm not an idiot like them. What could go wrong? It'll be fine. You ever said it'll be fine and then found out on back end it wasn't fine? You ever, you ever live there? He says, fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. Let me just, let me just, I didn't say this in the first service, but I just, I'm going to just share this, not, not in my notes. So, so I don't drink at all. Like I'm a total abstainer. Like I even throw out cough medicine. Caution, that's not true, all right? And let me tell you why. I don't think it's a sin to have a drink, all right? So we disagree, and like I, I get all that. Let me tell you why. Here's what the Bible says, that wine is a mocker. You know what that means? It makes people wise look foolish. You know what that tells me? Um, very easily, that same thing could happen to me. And so I can't proceed ahead with reckless confidence, thinking it'll never happen to me. I would never be an idiot like those other people and get addicted and all that kind of thing. It's a mocker. It makes people who think they're wise look like fools. That's all I need to hear, bro. That's it. I'm good. I'm not running ahead with reckless confidence saying that would never happen to me. Here's the fourth question. Can I do it in faith? Whatever it is. Can I do it in faith? If it violates your biblically informed, spirit-filled conscience, you can't do it in faith. It's sin to you. Uh, Romans 14, 23, in the context, they were debating, should I eat meat that's been offered to idols? And some people are like, whatever, it's just hamburger. Just eat it, right? And some are like, no, that's wicked. You know. So here's what it says. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. Can I do it in faith? Here's the last question. Does it move me closer to Christ? D don't ask, can I do this and still be cool with God? Don't, don't ask. Listen, the question you should ask is, does this move me closer to Christ? Or does it have the potential to enslave me in sinful patterns? 1 Corinthians 10, 23 says this, all things are lawful. You're like, what can I do as a Christian? Anything you want, you're under grace. Anything, you're not under the law. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And I don't know what kind of temptation you're walking through to compromise. And I don't know how strong it is. I don't know how often it's, but I know this. There's a, there, if you're not careful, what you're going to think is, boy, given the circumstance and the temptation, the uniqueness of the situation I'm in, no, no one's ever walked through this and, and came out. Like, so, so God knows my heart, and I'm going to give in, but, but, but given the circumstances, that, listen, let me remind you of God's promise. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, not be able to bear it. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, it's too late. I've compromised too many times, too recently. That thing that I swore I would never do again, I did. And what's the point? And the point is this, that if I understand the Bible and I understand grace, that means this, there is no pit so deep 
that his grace does not reach all the way down to the bottom. There is no pit so deep that his grace does not reach all the way down to the bottom. And I don't know about you, but for me, this sinner has some good news. And his name is Jesus. Jesus.